I had the privilege of talking to a class of students who had been assigned to read my book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Their questions were perceptive, and I learned a lot about Seattle. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So everybody, we're really honored today to have Elizabeth Williams, who's the founder and curator of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the author of New Orleans, a Food Biography, which is a book we read and discussed in this class. And Liz, thanks for coming to zooming into our classroom here at the University of Washington. This is the honors program. So some wonderful students in this class, and it's a course about Caribbean and Gulf Coast arts, including culinary arts. So we're excited to have you today. Well, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm so grateful to everyone for being willing to be part of the podcast. I think it'll be a really interesting podcast to have a, an actual classroom experience for everyone to listen to. Well, let me let me begin by talking a little bit about the whole big city biography series and how I got started writing this. So the big city's biography series is a series of books that talk about the food of various cities, obviously. Um, there's a New York one, there's a uh, London one, a Paris one, and there are several in the United States also. And so I was lucky enough to be on the quest for why we had a cuisine in New Orleans at the time that this series was developing. And so my book actually wound up being the first one of the series that was published. So um, I got to put a timeline in, I got to do all sorts of things that I don't think were originally considered in the, in the original idea for the series. But it was really fortunate that I had an outlet for all the things that I had been kind of on a quest for. So when we opened the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, which happened in 2008, we had to tell the story of why there was a cuisine in New Orleans. So Sidney Mintz, the anthropologist, wrote that there are three aspects of cuisine. And those are basically that everyone in an area knows what the cuisine is, that people identify with the cuisine and consider it part of their personal and group identity. And number three, they recognize all of the cuisine when they experience it. So that means if I make gumbo and you come to my house and you eat it, you recognize that what I'm serving you is New Orleans gumbo. 
And if I go to your house and you are from New Orleans and you make a gumbo that's not exactly the same because everybody's gumbo is a little bit different, I still recognize that yours is a New Orleans gumbo. So we can actually recognize each other through the food. So it's really different from a place where there are a collection of recipes, where you go someplace like New York and instead of having all of the groups there, having amalgamated together to create a New York cuisine, everyone has re remained separate. So you can actually eat the world in New York and it's a fabulous food culture, but it's not a cuisine. So I wanted to know why a cuisine developed in New Orleans and a cuisine did not develop in other places in the United States. So this became this kind of crazy quest because I was sure that somebody had already written a book about this or written an article about it and no one had. So I began. So I'm going to, if you've read the book, you sort of know what my theory is, but I'm gonna go through it anyway because I think it's really a, an interesting distinction and it says something about the way we study in America. Um, when we study America and the America that was before we became the United States of America, we really only study the 13 original colonies. And we forget that at the same time that that's going on, there are other places where there are European settlements in the United States that are developing alongside of the United States of America or what is to be the United States of America. So we don't study as a group what's going on in say the French settlements. And so it's almost as though it didn't happen because we really don't know about it. We just know about that kind of Atlantic coast area as it was developing. We know all the names of the colonies, we know what happened about the different wars that were happening with the French and the Indians and the English. But what's going on, say, in New Orleans on the Gulf Coast was just not something that is usually studied, unless you're studying Louisiana history because you're in Louisiana. So what I realized was that when all of this was going on, what became the United States was very influenced by the English Enlightenment. So the English Enlightenment, which is the Enlightenment that we study in history generally, really talked about applying reason to science and government. And it was something that you know influenced Darwin and other people in that time, but it never actually was applied to the arts in England. And in England, they did not consider culinary arts part of the arts of England. They also had a, a unique attitude toward colonies. There was England and there were the colonies. And if you came to the colonies to live, you wanted to maintain your English identity. So you continued to to dress as an English person would, you eat like an English person, you speak like an English person and act like an English person. 
it was learned by people who followed some of the original settlers that by going to the settlement, they would find that everyone was dead. And if you read their journals, they actually starved to death because they wouldn't eat the food that was available in the area because they didn't want to eat like the savages. They would rather die as an English person than stay alive by eating like a savage. Well, France, which is the country that first established New Orleans, France had the Enlightenment also. So there you have Voltaire, you have other French writers whom we often don't study when we're studying the Enlightenment because everything is written in French. You have to read it in translation. And unless you're reading something or taking a special course on the Enlightenment that does some kind of compare and contrast, we don't get the full story of what's going on in France during the Enlightenment. So what is happening is that instead of applying reason to science, now remember the Enlightenment is the age of reason. So it's always gonna have to do with reason. They applied reason to the arts. So they started to talk about how if you make music, it's only meaningful if someone who understands music listens to it. So everything had to be balanced and everything had to be mirror images of each other. So that meant that because they considered the culinary arts equal to music or visual arts or performing arts, you had to understand your food and understand what you were eating as well as to have someone who was preparing it with finesse and artistry. So the people who came to America, even though the ones who came to uh, live in New Orleans or in the region were being taken out of prisons and sent here because they were pickpockets or because they were petty criminals of some sort, they still had this filtered down understanding of this idea of food as an art form. And so they came here and they did not believe the way the English did that they were in the colonies. This actually was France. So if you came to live in this area that was part of France, that meant that the food that you were eating there was French food. And therefore, if you had to eat something that you had never eaten before, let's say you had to eat an alligator, it was a French alligator. So you didn't even hesitate because it was a French alligator. It wasn't strange food. It wasn't the food of others. It was French food. And so you might have to learn from the native people how to catch it, how to prepare it, but then you could still eat it. So the idea of eating what was available as opposed to trying to make England available to you was very, very distinct. So that's one thing that I think made a big difference in why there was a cuisine that developed in, in 
the New Orleans area. It was really because there was a belief that it's okay to eat what's here. And then the, also the underlying belief that you could prepare it with artistry. And if you can prepare it with artistry and enjoy it because you understand that artistry, then you also have a reason to identify with it because it is delicious. And let's face it, you still have to eat whether it's artistic or not, but it's certainly a lot more pleasant to have food that tastes good than food that doesn't. So this was something that I think continues to be applied in New Orleans. And we can see throughout history as different groups have come to New Orleans, they have influenced the food greatly and the food of the people who come, of the people who are the new immigrants also changes so that you have new dishes that use the old techniques that have just brought been brought by the new immigrants but it is food that really bridges the gap between the immigrants food and the food of new orleans so that we say in new orleans that it's become creolized now Creole is a word that often causes all kinds of controversies. Originally, it was a word that meant that you were born in the colonies. Um, it's come to mean all sorts of things. Some people have owned it as a way of saying people are of mixed race. Other people believe that it means you're part of some sort of aristocracy within a colonial place. I'm not using it in any of those ways. There was a journalist, his name was Lafcadio Hearn, and he called the food of New Orleans in the late 19th century, he called the food Creole food. Now, before he called it Creole food, it actually was just food. Nobody gave it a name, it was just food. But once it was named, it was easier to talk about it as distinct from the food of other parts of America. And so that is the way I use the word Creole to talk about the food of New Orleans and not the food of any particular group. The food of New Orleans continues to change. It's still alive. There's no place where you draw a line in the sand and say on this date, the food that was eaten before this date, that's authentic. And the food that's eaten after this date isn't authentic. The food changes, it constantly changes. And so that's pretty much why it's still fantastic because you know, if you ossify it by saying it can't change, then it starts to die. And we see that in all kinds of things where it's not allowed to change and then people stop being interested in it. Now, you know, we have in the right in the 1970s, we had all of the people who came to New Orleans after the fall of Saigon, and they have influenced the food of New Orleans. Now you find lemongrass in all of our cooking. Um, there's so many techniques of quick pickling that are now applied to 
all kinds of foods in New Orleans. It's really amazing. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had people from Mexico who put food trucks up everywhere when everything was shut down and you're still sloshing through water as you went from one place to another. So now we've got oyster tacos and things that you would never eat in Mexico, but they taste awfully good. And they're this kind of creolized version of all these groups who've come to New Orleans. So are all of you from the Northwest of, of America? From like way out of state. I used to live by DC, but um, like, I don't know, we seem to be from a variety of places, but like mostly the Northwest. Okay, okay. And so do you believe that there is a cuisine in the Northwest? I know we had this discussion when we were talking about your book. Go for it. <laughs> um, I guess like there are some dishes or like ingredients that are very sort of like central to the Pacific Northwest, like salmon or like there are a lot of teriyaki places here and teriyaki was sort of, I guess, invented up here in Seattle. But now that it's sort of spread to a lot of places, I don't think either of those things, like if you were in Seattle, you would think, oh, you know, this is a very Seattle food place. But if you found salmon or teriyaki somewhere else, you wouldn't be like, oh, this is a Seattle place, a Seattle food place that's somewhere else. You would just think, oh, they're serving salmon or teriyaki. Okay, well, I, I think one of the things that um, makes the New Orleans scene a little bit different is that so much of the food that you get in a restaurant is like the food people eat at home. Whereas I think that if you go out to eat and it's something that the restaurants serve, but that nobody eats at home, that you're, you're not having the same kind of cultural experience because you're, you're getting it from like from a chef or somebody who is preparing it over and over again for public consumption. Whereas if you're eating your own cuisine, it comes from your from all the people's homes. It's like a social invention where everyone participates in making it. So that may be one of the distinctions and why you don't think that Seattle really has a cuisine because your examples are all about restaurants. Do people in the class, do you eat salmon and teriyaki at home? Or would you say you eat typical Seattle food at home? I'm getting some nods. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think also in New Orleans, the chef, like the role of a chef has a very special role, I think. Well, of course, we, we live to eat. Um, and I know that there are many parts of the world where people eat to live. But it's very important that chefs, first of all, we definitely care about whether you cook well as opposed to whether you have the right credentials. So the results are more important than your credentials. And people in New Orleans go to restaurants because they want to eat and not because they want to be seen. And I've been in other 
towns and eaten in restaurants where you just go there to be seen and it doesn't matter what you eat. And nobody does that in New Orleans. And we'll all go to dives, we'll go to the worst neighborhoods and all of that because the food is good. And it just is, doesn't really matter about any of the accoutrement of, of, of the, the dining establishment. It's really about whether the food tastes good. <laughs> that is so true. I remember living in New Orleans and chefs will sometimes open a restaurant, uh, restaurant in a so-called not so great neighborhood and it won't have a sign outside. And it'll just be word of mouth. Oh, there's good food over there. Oh yes, it doesn't take long. I mean, and we we definitely report on changes in chefs and in restaurants. And there are several people on the staff who do food writing for newspapers. And you just can't have a magazine in New Orleans that doesn't have at least one food writer on staff. It just, it can't be done. I know when we were discussing your book, we were talking about the word Creole. Uh-huh. And the question came up, is, is there Creolization here in the Pacific Northwest? And I wonder if anyone remembers that discussion or has any thoughts on that or a question about that? Um, come on up. <laughs> All right, I had a question. I was wondering, I'm just gonna, here we go, get real close. Um, so, a question that I had was, I know that part of New Orleans culture as well, there's creolization, but there's also maintaining tradition. And I was wondering where the line is between two and what cultures become part of creolization and what cultures don't. And what, how does that happen? And what is the criteria for what culture can be incorporated and what culture can't? So that's, that's my question. That's a great question. Thanks. A really good question. So I, I would say, let's talk about the question of tradition first. And I'll give you an example of kala. So kala is a rice fritter that people have eaten for a very long time. And at one point, it was made with the yeasts in the air. So you would make a batter the night before, leave it out in your kitchen uncovered so that the yeasts in the air could fall into it and it ferments slightly. It creates a little bit of carbon dioxide from the fermentation so that it kind of bubbles and it will rise when you fry it the next morning. So it's instead of a beignet or a donut, you would have this fried dough, but it was made of rice and not, um, and not oh, there's flour in it, but it, it, it was a way to use up at leftover rice. So then as it became possible to raise yeast as people were making beer and they realized that you could put yeast, you could inoculate your batter with yeast then you had a more stable product because on some nights your kala, because it was cold or because of other kinds of weather conditions or other conditions, not a lot of yeast might fall into your dish or into your bowl. And so there's very little fermentation. So the kala doesn't rise very much that when you fry it the next morning. 
But if you inoculated it with yeast the night before, then you could reliably have a nice fluffy um, rice fritter. But then it changed again when we started to use baking powder. And then instead of making it the night before, you could make it that morning and add baking powder and it would still rise. So it was certainly a lot easier to make it the next morning than have to leave it out all night and take a chance. So the, if you are applying tradition, you should never change. We shouldn't even use yeast that's inoculated. We should just let the yeast of the air take over. And we would never move forward into the modern world. So I don't think that that kind of change is flying in the face of tradition. And I think that people can accept that kind of change. We have people whose parents or maybe grandparents would make something like crawfish etouffee with a can of condensed mushroom soup. And they think that if you don't put condensed mushroom soup in your etouffee, that it's not etouffee. But of course, that's not tradition, that's a change. So, but I would certainly not say that it's not crawfish etouffee. It is crawfish etouffee. It's just a changing look at crawfish etouffee and it's gone out of fashion to add condensed mushroom soup to your etouffee. Um, so I, I think that because as I said before, it's a social invention, as enough people start to adopt the changes, it is reinvented and it is evolving. So you, know, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to do this and then have everybody just jump on board and say, oh yeah, what a great idea. But it gradually changes. And so I think that's the way almost any kind of change happens. So then your other question was about what ethnic groups or what immigrant groups actually get to influence the food. I think that there have to be enough people who settle in New Orleans from somewhere to have an effect on the food. In other words, if you have one group of people who come let's say you have one family that comes from Greenland, um, that may not affect the food because they, there just isn't enough effect from one family to make the food change. But if you had 100,000 people or 75,000 people or some huge number of people from Greenland come to settle in New Orleans, believe me, it would change the food. And so I don't know how it would change the food. I don't know what there would be, but just think about it. In Greenland, there's a lot of seafood. There's a lot of seafood in New Orleans. It's different seafood. Ours is warm water. There's this cold water, but nevertheless, there's a lot of seafood. So there could be ways that they could take the, the ingredients that are available in New Orleans and turn that into something that they recognize, but that we would also recognize because at least we would recognize the ingredients. And that would begin, if it tasted good, 
it would begin to change the food of New Orleans. So once again, I go back to the idea that this is a social invention. Even the food that chefs create is based on the food that has been created through this social method. And certainly, if I go to your house and your gumbo has some ingredient that I don't put in mine, or you use some technique that I don't use, but I like the way it tastes and I begin to adopt it, that, that's part of the social invention of our food. And so what, um, are you also in your class talking about the essentially creolization of other things besides food? And does anyone want to comment on that? Like what other definitions of Creole have we been engaging with? I know we've been talking about a lot of Creole things because the whole course is about the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast. I have another food example to give while people are thinking of it. Yeah. Just, just, um, just you're, you're asking for Seattle examples. Um, and, you know, we talked about Seattle or salmon being a cuisine of Seattle. And I just thought of a brief like anecdote of, you know, I the way my family makes salmon is we season it with uh, Tony Chicharis, which is a, <laughs> I can't remember if it's a Cajun or Creole seasoning, but I just, you know, thought of that being like an example of maybe, you know, you're, you're using, you know, a recipe, you know, you're using the seasoning with, with ingredients that are from somewhere completely different, but it, it kind of ends up working out in the end of the day. Right, um, right. <laughs> and, that's, and, that's, and that's home cooking, you know, that's not, that's not something from a restaurant, but. No, no, and I think, I think you're, you're right. There's a lot of reach from Louisiana. There was Paul Prudhomme, who certainly became very famous around the country and had many cookbooks talking about the Creole food of and Cajun food of Louisiana. And so he made black and red fish with a seasoning that is very much like Tony Sacheray's. But also there was Al Copeland who is the founder of Popeyes. And the difference between Popeyes and Paul Prudhomme is Paul Prudhomme's food was known to people, of course, who ate at his restaurant, but who watched his shows on public television and maybe cooked from his cookbook. But they would only have tasted the food if they actually went to his restaurant. Whereas Popeyes actually took the food of Louisiana to reproduce it all over America. And so in some ways, you got an authentic bite of Louisiana every time you ordered something from Popeyes. And it wasn't you interpreting something from a cookbook. It was given to you on the plate already. And so you had, hadn't even imposed your own way of cooking on it. It just came to you. And I think that um, eating spicy chicken and spicy popcorn shrimp and those sorts of things were were a way for people to eat spicier food than perhaps they all already were eating um i i think it's interesting to look at the statistics about how much spicy chicken was sold in this region versus the, the mild chicken and um certainly influenced 
places like Kentucky Fried Chicken to add a spicy version to their selection because before that they hadn't even thought about it. Um, so it's kind of, I think it's really interesting, but I love the blending of the spices and the kind of kind of um, blackened fish um, approach or technique of cooking to the to the your salmon. Do you cook it on a grill or do you cook it on um, a griddle or how do you cook it? I uh, usually just grilled grilled salmon. Yeah, yeah. And then just kind of actually not even blackened, just kind of sprinkling it on top. Sprinkle it on, yeah. We, we cook it the way that you usually cook it. And like, that's the, I would say this, like the Pacific Northwest style of cooking salmon is, you know, kind of lightly grilling it. Um, but just adding that, adding that seasoning is a little bit of a touch. That's just the way that we learn to cook it or that, that my family always does it. But it, it, yeah. it reminds me of kind of taking that Seattle cuisine, if, if, if you can call it that, maybe maybe we were debating whether or not it's a cuisine or not, but to the extent that it is, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so Ms. Schwartz was talking about how we were discussing different sort of aspects about outside of food where creolization occurred without like, like outside of food. and. One of the things that I thought of was like music in the sense that the literal Creole population that was mixed race population had been classically trained in European, white European classical music, but they also incorporated aspects of uh, native African folk music. In, and so that helped develop jazz, which in turn developed the blues. And it, the blues then jazz, which then developed into jazz. Uh-huh. Yeah. And certainly in, in New Orleans, when the Sicilians came between about 1885 to about 1915, they lived in the areas where the African-Americans did, and they played a lot of jazz, too, and were participants in a lot of the, uh, the, the various bands and groups that were playing jazz. So, yeah, it's all mixed together. And I, I do agree with you. That's kind of an interesting creolization for sure. Yeah, we have, we've talked about music. We've talked about food in this class, many different topics. So you have another question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about what you were talking about with the, like, uh, in a previous question, you had said something about, like, oh, if enough people from wherever came here, then their food culture would be part of the creolization of some place. And that got me thinking about like how the, how the sort of transmission works of these, these different like styles of cooking and information and under what conditions will it be enough communication about cooking to start like, getting that information to flow between people because there are a bunch of ways that could happen. It could be like a parent teaching their kid about how to cook because, you know, this was like the great, great grandmother's recipe, but it could also be like, you know, 
a bunch of people all the same age they're in a new area and they're like sharing tips on how to cook but then if i'm thinking of like modern examples it might be like um you know everybody's looking for recipes online or there's like people who will sort of like train you how to cook or sometimes that like flow of information can be interrupted because you can get the answers so fast through the internet or you don't even have to develop those cooking skills because you can just get a prepackaged meal so uh under what conditions <laughs> or like what different ways are there to have enough like communication about food to sort of get that like creolization and get that new cuisine to form and under what conditions would that be like stifled do you say well i think that there are a number of ways and i think that there's no one way i think usually there are several things going on at the same time let's talk for example about the time after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So in 2005, Hurricane Katrina flooded New Orleans. It was underwater for, uh, well, I would say it flooded about 85% of New Orleans. And it was underwater for about three weeks because it took that long to pump the water out of the city. So once that was over, there was Nobody, nobody was there. I mean, I say nobody, that's an exaggeration, but there were very few people in the city. And so the grocery stores weren't open right away. You had to drive far to get food and you often didn't have electricity or, or natural gas. You couldn't drink the water. I mean, there was all kinds of things that made it virtually impossible. So, there were restaurants, for example, that were cooking out on the street so that, and just giving their food away so that it, they could use food that would, because they didn't want it to all spoil. And so if you were part of that, if you decided I'm going to make money um, by opening a food truck or some other way of, of disseminating the food and distributing it um, and your food was different, everybody was eating it because there wasn't any other food. So that after a disaster gives you a different kind of way of introducing things. Um, looking at something that happened around the world, let's look at something like Tabasco. So little bottles of Tabasco were included in World War II and I think even World War I, but I'm not as sure about that. World War II um, sea rations of all the soldiers. And so those little bottles went around the world because it was a world war. And that influenced all kinds of cuisines to have access to something like Tabasco. Sometimes it's because people live near someone else or a whole group moves into a neighborhood and they start meeting the people in the neighborhood and eating in each other's homes and they learn how these people 
that have lived here forever cook their food and then you go to their house and eat their food and they're stuck with the ingredients the same ingredients because they may not have the ingredients from home but they're trying to make do and so it starts to just kind of simply go from one to the other. And it may be with the children. It may be everybody knows each other from school. And you go to your friend's house and your friend is from another country and you eat the food there and you start to like it and you tell your parents, oh, well, I want to do it this way. All of those things, all those things happen. And then people get married or they live together or uh, for whether they live together just for convenience or for other reasons, and they start exchanging, there's cultural exchange going on all the time. So you can't find, I don't think you can ever just find one way that it happens. I think the, the most interesting, the most interesting aspect of it is the, the way that today so many people eat out. And, and I think that that's going to resume a lot once all the restaurants are open and people feel comfortable after COVID going back to eat in restaurants. And that also means that the chefs are influenced in those ways. And that as the food that they make changes because of the influences of outsiders or newcomers or however you want to call them, that also influences the food and all the people who eat, especially from popular chefs. But even in America, you can look and see, for example, we have something that is called filet in Louisiana, and that is dried sassafras leaves. Now, sassafras is, is a native plant to um, America. And when the Europeans came, it was already, filet was being used or dried sassafras was being used as a thickener by the native people. So that if they made a stew of some sort and they wanted it to thicken, they would put sassafras, they would take dried sassafras leaves and grind them up and put them into the stew. It was a flavoring agent, but it also was a thickener. So, I, was just, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt, but I had another thought about creolization processes, but finish your thought and then I'll interrupt. <laughs> okay. And so Native people started to uh, especially interact with enslaved people who, who escaped and lived in the swamps with the, um, the Native people. And the African... Uh, mortar and pestle was replicated by those enslaved Africans who used cypress stumps instead of whatever kind of tree that they would use in Africa. And that was considered so much of a technical improvement by the native people that they began to use it too. So they pounded the, the leaves into a powder instead of just grinding them up with their hands or in a kind of uh, more American way of grinding with the stones. So I think that's a perfect example of the kind of 
transfer, a cultural transfer that you can find because people are living close together. I think that will be of interest to our students. We've been talking a lot about race, and I, I just wanted to interject that there's also this difference in modern or contemporary times between the South and the North. Um, we are living in this big northern city here in Seattle, so what you're describing where people go over to each other's houses might be a little foreign up here. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we might interact differently in different regions of the U.S. Well, uh, that's true. It's certainly in, in New Orleans, you invite people to your home a lot, so you would be eating together. You have another question. Thanks. I see that. Hi, sort of along the same lines as what you were just talking about, but I was thinking back to when we were talking about New Orleans Mardi Gras festivals and how there was kind of like the front of town and back of town, which like one more commercial than one like within the neighborhoods, like of people who were more entrenched in the culture there. And I was wondering if there was any similar like impact of commercialization on the food in New Orleans. I, I think that chefs would very much like there to be that they would have a lot more influence on the food because um, then they could feel like they could claim certain things. I invented this or I'm known for that. But, you know, it's still true today that if someone asks a, a native New Orleanian, where can you get the best gumbo? They never give you the name of a restaurant. They always say, oh, my Aunt Sally, or, or I make the best, or something like that. Because um, you don't go, I, you want to have great food at a restaurant, but you're going to eat out because it's convenient, because you're doing something else, or you're meeting people. It's not because you can't do it at home, or doing it at home isn't as good, or anything like that. It's so we haven't. I don't think that we have the same distinction. I, I, I can tell you that once a friend of mine and I got all dressed up and we went into an office building. I mean, we were carrying briefcase and everything. And you know how in an off in a, a an elevator, and we just kept getting in and out of the elevator in the office building, and we had this routine where I would say, where do you think the best roast beef po' boy is in New Orleans? And she would say, you know, in the elevator, most of the time you just look at the, the back of the person in front of you and everybody faces the door and you don't really have big conversations in the elevator. But you could, you, the whole elevator would break down and start to tell you, they would just burst into your conversation if you were talking about where the best po' boy was. And a po' boy might be something that you would only eat at a po' boy shop and not eat at home that often. And so then going out to have a po' boy was something that was done outside of your home. So you needed to know where the best place was. And it didn't matter whether the person in the elevator was the janitor with a mop and a bucket on wheels that was going from one floor to another in the office building. The janitor felt just as much that he had a right or she had a right to interrupt that conversation and have an opinion as the people who were working in the office, in offices at behind a desk. And so I don't think that it's 
the kind of commercial versus the more personal or anything like that. I think it's all personal in New Orleans if it's about food. Great, we have another question. Hey. So my question is actually kind of related to that one. But instead of looking at the relationship between like commercial versus personal food, I'm curious about like kind of high class versus like lower class food, which at least definitely, I think in Washington, there's a very clear like some foods are considered fancier. And I'm wondering if kind of like the, the common, I guess, is like, does it exist kind of outside of that spectrum? Is it considered like, does it fall somewhere on there? Or is it all kind of um, subjective? Well, I don't think that there is a difference between um, higher class food and lower class food. I don't think you can say that about the food of New Orleans. Food that you might think of as less expensive, like red beans and rice, everybody eats that. It, it's not a class thing. Everybody eats it. And I just don't think that you can, I, I'm not going to say there aren't snobs, okay? They're going to be snobs. But um, the snobs are going to say, oh, this tastes better at this place. Not that it's high class, okay? That's what the snobbishness is going to be about. I just don't think you can make a high class argument about the food of New Orleans. Even the lowliest place is a place where if it's good, everybody's gonna go. I mean, in New Orleans, for example, if you go at three o'clock in the morning to Cafe Du Monde, to have beignets and coffee. They're gonna be people in tuxedos or even in tails and beautiful long gowns eating at one table and homeless people two tables away um, eating there. It's just because it's good, it tastes good and this is the place you wanna to go to eat it. And so um, I'm not trying to say that we're all so egalitarian or so wonderful and there are no problems or anything like that. But food is the one thing I think in New Orleans that brings people together. It's funny that you say, did you say 3 a.m.? Because that's kind of a concept here. I think Seattle is a city that kind of shuts down around nine o'clock at night, I think. Mm -hmm. Literally, we don't really have 24-hour places and things like that. Well, you know, New Orleans is, I mean, it's not like New York. It's not a city that never sleeps, but it's definitely, there's some place to go all, all the time. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had heard of the Seattle Freeze. Seattle Freeze. No, what is that? Okay, so, <laughs> well, okay, this is the biggest thing that I noticed the difference between like the Pacific Northwest and the South is the Seattle Freeze is nobody talks to each other and nobody like social, I guess, a, a meal here is usually it's on the go. You sort of just pick up something for nutrition. You're not enjoying it with somebody. Seattle Freeze is you don't talk to other people like if you go on the light rail and try to have a conversation, people think that you're crazy and think that you need mental health. So that's like a huge thing in Seattle is people don't talk to you. And I also had a huge conversation with 
one of my friends is from New York and you know everyone talks to each other in New York everyone stands up for each other on New York is something is happening on public transit and part of something that's really scary in Seattle is that I've had instances where I've gone on the bus and someone has been bothering me and everybody will look down or look at their phones and pretend that it's not happening. So that's like an example of how Seattle freeze can actually be pretty, pretty scary. But yeah, it affects, it affects the relationship with food as well. So I just wanted to tell you about that because I think it's quite the, quite the difference and it's, yeah, it's definitely a thing for sure. Oh, yeah, that's really, that's really, I'm sorry. <laughs> in New Orleans, for example, you're in line at the grocery store and you have something in your basket that the person behind you isn't familiar with. And they'll just say, oh, what's that? How do you cook it? Or the person checking you out will ask you about it and you'll stand there and talk about it. And then the person behind you will chime in and talk about it too. And so it, it's, you know. Yeah, that would never happen here. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that was something that is so true, Liz, because when I lived in New Orleans, I remember sometimes going to the grocery store and I would think, this is not your business, my nutrition. And people in the line in front of me and behind me would chime in about how I was eating and what I was buying and what was I going to make. I remember that. <laughs> but see, I wouldn't be offended by that. I would just, I wouldn't think that it was like they were trying to be interfering. It's more just like, well, we all, you know, we're going to learn something from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would get comments about that's nutritious, but you're combining it with something that's not nutritious. How are you eating? And I don't think anyone up here would say that. <laughs> <laughs> We have, we have grocery stores called Amazon Fresh, where you just, um, oh, does anyone want to explain that to Liz? <laughs> it's probably the saddest thing you're ever going to hear. So what Amazon Fresh is, is basically it's Amazon Prime, but in an actual grocery store. So you walk in, you check into your Amazon account, you put things in your cart, it weighs them and scans them and automatically knows what the product is. And then charges you on your Amazon account and you walk out with groceries and you get to be on your phone the whole time and you don't have to talk to anyone. You don't have to talk to anyone when you check out. You don't have to talk to anyone else to like know where anything is on aisle this or aisle that. You are in your own world and it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's wonky. It's real wonky. So it's pretty depressing, but. <laughs> oh my. Well, <laughs> we, we just had a suggestion as a title for your podcast food, food horror stories from seattle <laughs> well i am really sorry that i have to go but this has been just a delightful experience thank you so much for sharing all of your your thoughts with me and thank you nina for inviting me yeah, thank you so much for visiting the class and we all enjoyed your book and I think everyone asked really wonderful questions and we're sorry we scared you off with the Seattle food horror stories. <laughs> thank Goodbye, you for visiting. Everybody. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.